welcome to Playwright, a podcast about creating and sharing new ways to play. My name is Ryan Heyman. You can call me H. And I'm Ryan Quintel. You can call me Q. Now, you'll all remember when we started this podcast, it was um, it was me and, and Joshua Garrity as the, the main hosts of this show. And mm-hmm. we had uh, Q on really early as one of our guests, um, just because he was really excited to share something that was really kind of close to his heart. But we just... I mean, we just never really got around to it. And so, you know, Joss has been great to just like sit it out for the last while. He's been a really good sport about this. But um, I just I feel so bad that every week, Q, you take time out of your schedule to come on our podcast again. And and we keep promising you like, oh, you know what? We just ran out of time, but we'll let you get to it this week. So now before we do anything else, because I I just feel terrible, I want to give you a chance to really get into like, what, what is it that's on your mind this whole time? (sighs) Okay. Have you heard of chemtrails? Uh, those are those, um, those are the things that the, um, planes leave behind. Is that right? Yes, man. That's right. Chemtrails are a serious problem. And I feel like I've had no platform to talk about this. Now I know that this podcast has gone off the rails. It's become kind of a video game thing, which was not its original intent and not my, certainly my original intent as a guest. Right. This was originally called Play Flight, which was talking about um, various conspiracy theories. I don't even want to say theories because of course they're all true about, you know, such things as the uh, temperature that jet fuel burns at and such, but uh, all to do with, uh, with airlines. People wake up. Okay, if you've seen the new trailer for Maleficent, the chem trailer, is that the the chem trailer for Maleficent? You're seeing Angelina Jolie in her true form. Her and John Voight are part of a secret organization that does most of what we know as the governing on this planet. And chemtrails is how they enact our stupor. They got you thinking that you want a Pokemon made of whipped cream. Well, this is all very interesting. And of, of course, I do want to hear more about this, but uh, we do have oh. to get to the video games and oh. we'll make time for the rest of this as soon as possible. I promise. Okay. So Q, what kind of video game are you going to be inventing today? This feels like a gear shift, but uh, okay, I'll give it <laughs> my best shot. My pitch for you this week is a sort of poor v rich talk about social commentary oh no i did the same thing this week <laughs> oh no okay well i think we'll have some different interpretations All right, Occupy playwright uh so the idea was kind of an asymmetrical maybe battle royale maybe not but i'm thinking it could be as simple as 4v4 um where you have two teams one is well equipped maybe has the ability to build and repair things like think gears of war modern incarnations of horde mode you get money and resources and you have a lot at your disposal you're also very tanky characters and then you have another team that uh is maybe the same number of players maybe you do an asymmetrical battle royale and have you know 80 players on the other team but the other team has just not a lot of resources, pretty lousy weaponry, and they die very quickly, but there's a lot of them. They got a ton of lives and a ton of respawns, and just like any horde overwhelming you uh, can be a real threat. So that's the general pitch, and hopefully we don't overlap too much here. All right, um, starting the clock there. So just to ensure that I'm uh, understanding the premise here... You uh, pitch this as a rich versus poor game in which you (laughs) 
uh, frame the poor as being a horde of monsters that are overtaking the rich. Is that what I'm picking up? No, here? I, so that yeah, I don't know I use if the I really term. I'm on board with this one. <laughs> I'm using the term horde uh, only to mean legion or a large group of people oh, okay. so um yeah p- poor choice so, of words legion, like the uh, the new testament demon <laughs> exactly now you've got it to be thrown into a herd of pigs and cast over the side of a cliff exactly yeah so i mean on one side let's use gears of war like aesthetics for in our heads for a second one side imagine like gold and silver clad heroes that have like a ton of shields and health and a bunch of defenses they can build on mm-hmm. the other side you have people wearing rags they've got no armor you know a couple hits and they might be dead but all it takes is enough of them working together in a coordinated enough way to <laughs> break through the defenses and take it back from the rich, baby. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so I I always like to be very positive on this show, but uh, just to, to be completely honest, I don't, I still am not in completely on board with, uh, I'm not sure I like this one just yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get there. You know, I just kind of need a little bit more handholding along the way. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be the rich person cutting down poor people. Is that right. okay to say? <laughs> yeah. So, well, here's, I, cause I imagine like players don't necessarily get to choose, right? You're uh-huh. kind of assigned a team. We've been like playing. like in real life, you can be born, <laughs> born rich and born poor. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so there, there is an aspect to this that I think in my mind is directly connected to the sort of politics of the Purge movies. I don't know if you've seen mm, any okay. of the Purge movies, but, you know, you have these... Uh, you know, reasonably well-to-do people in these houses of their fortresses, basically, other people are left to fend for themselves. And I think that what you really ideally want is to create a situation where the the team that seems much better resourced and has much more capability is put up into an even match by the sheer skill hmm, okay. or set, you know, the or set of will that the other team can enact. So one is kind of padded out by technology maybe you even make them lousy at firing guns just to ensure that like one team is kind of skill free or something where you kind of empower the other team and and each one is is hopefully just to kind of take a step back in this premise here you know this kind of thing uh this kind of asymmetric multiplayer is done um in different skins a lot of the time sometimes it's humans versus zombies where the yeah zombies whether it's like left for dead or or um what is the World War Z that just came out recently? I think, I think so. uh, where the the zombies kind of overpower the humans as far as far as um, sheer numbers go, but any one zombie by themselves isn't that much of a threat. Or Days Gone, which we've seen recently. Um, also, you know, just uh, like um, Evolve that that game where it's four humans versus one giant monster, with the advantage being you know in the favor of the monster. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that with a little bit of like. I don't know, perhaps, perhaps reframing. <laughs> I, I think we can definitely get this to a, a place where, uh, yeah, there'll be some stuff to to work with here. And what you were saying earlier as a battle royale, maybe this could work in a way where it's like a battle royale character versus a, like a call of duty character where, you know, they come fully equipped with their loadout from the beginning, mm. but they have like a very shallow ceiling. Like there's not a lot of upgrading they can do when they're in the match. And so they kind of, from the beginning, have all of the equipment they're going to have. 
Um, but the battle royale player or character is, you know, dropped with fairly minimal supplies, but can always be upgrading. And so there's really like a much, much higher upper limit that it can get to, but you kind of have to play stealthy until you get to the point at which you can like seriously outclass one of the characters that um, kind of started good from the beginning. And then, uh, and I, I think that makes it a little, if, if they're both soldiers uh, just operating under different um, uh, modus operandi, then it's, it's not so much of a... <laughs> Call Ubisoft. We've gotten all the so politics a, out uh, of this thing. Class you know? war type of thing. <laughs> maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's just us chickening out because of the politics. If you, if you want to tackle it head on, then maybe we should just go for it, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, obviously this is painting with an incredibly broad brush and there's a lot of nuance to, you know, people who are both well-to-do and, and not well-off. Uh, but the uh, one thing that I think, if we just go back to gameplay for a second, one thing that I think could be interesting is give those Call of Duty-like players the, or maybe maybe better than Call of Duty potentially, is a Rainbow Six uh, mm-hmm. player. And so now these this small group of people also have like drones and gadgets and the ability to reinforce and repair the structure that they're kind of maintaining. I guess it would be equally horrifying to not have them be in one particular position that everybody's trying to siege, but rather be kind of like high level hunters dropped into the Island. And now you're doing like, literally a manhunt and that could be kind of interesting as well yeah kind of like a uh, the fugitive situation where maybe there's just one player who's vastly under equipped also this kind of makes me think of like you always have that um that kind of thought experiment in your head where it's like if one modern soldier was to be dropped in the middle of like a medieval war would them right. and their one gun be able to take down all of the soldiers and so, you know, maybe it is like a future soldier versus an entire team of like modern day soldiers or, or soldiers from various points in history. Um, I think there's a, a lot of cool ways to make kind of an unbalanced battlefield more interesting. You could also do things where like you have, let's say it's everybody's parachuting onto an island and like you're literally parachuting as the naked person right next to the person who's mm-hmm. in like full tactical gear. You know, they've got shields for days. Maybe they've got some future weapons or something. They can track people in the way that other people can't get tracked. Actually, this might be what the Predator game ends up being pretty soon here. (laughs) Well, all right. So we've got got something for the Predator team. But the, um, what I think could be really fun about that is now you're entering into a situation where you could almost treat it like a, like one of those future dystopian hunger games sort of things where the people who survive the longest against the hunter or kill one of the hunters earns themselves like points or tokens to redeem to play as a hunter in one mm, of the following okay. matches so like you're you're essentially dying your way to or trying to survive your way to being the hunter and then of course you can obviously go on some pretty massive destruction streaks when you're in the position of power I wonder if we can employ this kind of this trope that's in movies and literature of the the big game hunter who has kidnapped like five people, taken them to his private island and says, you know, like, I'll give you half an hour head start. And then I then the hunt begins. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And so they're they're just trying to, like, you know, piece together whatever kinds of like spears they can make out of rocks and sticks and whatever to try to defend themselves or just hide for long enough that the hunter gives up, but uh, using the island to their advantage, even though it's an unfamiliar ground for everyone involved. 
oh man, now you could do something where one of the things that I think is interesting about like Apex versus Apex Legends versus like a Fortnite or a, a PUBG is that you have heroes with abilities, right? So what if you could mm-hmm. have your team of hunters is a team of characters with abilities and complementary classes and they can communicate with each other, you know, automatically via voice chat and all this stuff. And like they are systematically trying to like eradicate the people on this island. You know, you could even, you know, put it under the auspice of like they're infected or whatever. So, we, you know, <laughs> whatever you need to do <laughs> to make you feel good about it. But um you can tell I'm very sort of blase about the politics in this particular thing today. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, but... no, we should. We'll, we'll talk off mic about this. We'll... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've got some feelings I got to work out. And so you can have them like able to communicate, able to share abilities and like have the tracker, have the uh, person who can do AOE, have the person with the gadgets and have the like assault person. Hmm. And it's them kind of versus the island of a hundred people. And so like you have that feeling of first hunter dropping, second hunter drop like you can have that over the loudspeaker and stuff and like oh, okay. slowly introduce the main hunters to the island and really just ratchet up the tension for the existing players, but also the feeling if you're one of the hunters of one of the other hunters' radios going dead or static or whatever is very Hollywood. Could even be like a real tug of war situation where if each hunter drops onto the island at kind of different points during the match, and it's it's pretty easy for the horde to overpower one hunter by himself. And so the rest of the hunter's team isn't given information as to whether the hunter that dropped before is still alive or dead. And so at that, when you're dropped ah. onto the island initially, you have to kind of take it easy and try to find scope things out find where your your partners are before the the horde overtakes you once all of your people are in place then obviously you can outgun the the opponent uh, opponent's team i think it could be cool too if hunters could heal each other and help each other and there's a lot of like co-op mechanics to being the hunter and uh maybe there's no there is no traditional if you don't have like the ever shrinking map and maybe you do still have that, but you don't have to do like bandages for the rest of the 100 people. Right. Because so many of those games are about people surviving to the very end and mm-hmm. still being reasonably robust in their combat abilities. I think you, you probably could balance it such that only the hunters can really help each other and everybody else is really, you're not targeting each other anymore, right? So there's a lot more focus as to where the damage is going to be pointed. All right, well, I'm going to have to call time on this one. Let's, um, yeah, let's see what kind of name we can give it. There's the, um, in, in those those movies and, and books that I was talking about earlier, there's that phrase that keeps coming up, the, what is it, man is the deadliest game or something like that, or the most dangerous yes. game. But if some if a game was called the most dangerous game, I feel like that would be kind of intriguing on its own. <laughs> yeah, if it's not already taken, I think the most dangerous game is a fun name that does feel a little bit like already a a battle royale or a player unknowns battlegrounds sort of scenario. Of, of course, I uh, kind of give gave you a bit of a, a razzing back there, but um, that's what we're here to do. We're here to discover, and we're here to <laughs> sometimes just say no. <laughs> And that's Let's okay. get into it. I'm ready. Pitches can completely change along the way, and that's what makes it fun. Well, anyways, I'm going to go now, continuing the rich vpor uh, type of type of gameplay action here. Um, but um, 
maybe you'll see what side I take in this. <laughs> Uh, so one of the mechanics that I enjoy a lot in video games that I don't get to do that often actually is uh, pickpocketing and uh, I, I love it in like Skyrim and Oblivion and I love how like janky it is in those games as well where it's like yeah you can look into somebody's pocket and see exactly what they're holding and that's fine but as soon as you try to take something that's when they get all weird about it nobody like if somebody came to me on the street and was just like opening my pocket and rifling through my stuff I'd just be like at this point you know, it, you've already gone too far. I'm not going to wait for you to try to take something. But anyways, yeah, I don't see pickpocketing used enough. And so uh, another game I've been playing recently, I've been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And, you know, for its, um, you know, for the ups and the downs of that game, I'm uh, I'm really enjoying just kind of being in this, this big world that feels, you know, huge and people are just kind of going about their lives and I can kind of interfere with the social structure of things by taking out leaders and, and various kind of elites in, in the cult and in the, the military and the government. So I was thinking about like, how about a game like Assassin's Creed set in a modern setting, perhaps, uh, in which you pickpocket as your primary action from rich people and uh, redistribute the wealth to the poor. So... Yeah, that leaves a lot of room open. It's not a finished idea necessarily. There's lots of room to expand, so I'm going to start that there and see where we take it. So I'm killing rich people and you're killing their wallets. Well, you're not killing. <laughs> oh, I see. You are. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, so let's let's talk about the pickpocketing mechanic itself in those games. I, I think one of the things that like Skyrim does, I might be wrong in this, is... When you reach into someone's pocket, it kind of pauses the entirety of the game, right? I've never felt like a game has given me that sort of technique that I've seen in movies and stuff where someone has to bump someone or they have to kind mm, of right. match stride slash pace with them in some way in order to successfully slip something out of a pocket. There's not that moment of like something is halfway out, you know, maybe maybe there's some way to create that mechanically or is that is that interesting to you at all? I feel like I've seen two versions of pickpocketing in video games. One is Skyrim where it pauses everything and then everything within the pocket has kind of a percentage chance, a percentage chance attached to it. Um, whether the pickpocket is going to be successful, which um, I, I kind of take back to kind of like JRPG logic where you understand that like any one hit can either like kill something or completely miss. And just the damage that you're doing is just kind of increasing the odds of landing a fatal blow. If you want to like take the metaphor of the JRPG battle system to its limits. So, you know, in that sense, it's kind of like the VAT system in fallout where it's like, you know, you have a 63% chance of stealing this item. Do you want to go for it? And then once you make that decision, time resumes and you see the results of your choice. And then the right. other system that I've seen is where it is a little bit more like what you're saying, where it's like you have to sneak up behind somebody and make sure they don't see you and perhaps, you know, match strides like you were saying, um, like you would see in a Dishonored or something like that. Uh, but usually when you hit the button, you just take everything in their pocket or one item like a key that you see hanging off of their belt loop or something like that so you know you don't get the same level of like specificity that you do in a skyrim game because i think it would be difficult to present item choices in a real-time setting but yeah skyrim i would classify as like turn-based pickpocketing and then dishonored i would classify as like real-time pickpocketing 
Yeah, what if... I guess, what if you served up a minigame that was a series of pipes with, with the water flowing through the <laughs> notes? Um, yeah, I, I love the... I guess what I'm really trying to get at is something that feels like almost like lock picking or something in a game, mm-hmm. the way that you're maybe rotating a joystick or you're exacting some feeling of analog control, almost like the, whether it's like with a trigger, you know, and using the full um, sort of articulation of the analog trigger rather than just being a series of button presses, something that feels like some level of skill. Do you, do you know the VR game, The Climb? Yes, I like that one a lot. Yeah, so one of, uh, one of my favorite things from that is that sort of mechanic where they, to get on a very tight little lip, they want you to hold down the trigger kind of halfway. Mm, right. I think that something like that could feel interesting here. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I think for this type of thing where you're talking about very specific control, putting it in VR is kind of a, like, that's an easy choice. Um, you know, because you get that full, like one-to-one motion control, you can just kind of like simulate the action that you want to perform. So yeah, that's, that's definitely an option. Um, I think it would be interesting to try to find ways to do this just with buttons and control sticks, just because that seems more difficult. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not like a hundred percent sold on, unless, you know, the, uh, pickpocketing itself was just kind of a component of a larger game. You know, if if the game centered around pickpocketing, I'm not I'm not sure I un, I know a way to make that mechanically interesting enough to really like hold the experience all the way through. Mm. You could go into ah, gosh, I wish I could come up with an example because I know that there are millions of examples. That's an exaggeration, but uh, of games where you get close enough to an object and time kind of slows and you can react and maybe get more like precise control over thing, but it's not like time is completely stopped. So, you know, you can kind of get close, you can focus, you can uh, maybe choose exactly like what pocket you're focusing on. And then maybe almost like a lock on mechanic. Then like once you're locked onto like a back right pocket, because that's where everybody puts their wallets, uh, then you can, try to like make pace and make sure that nobody around you is watching and make sure you're not noticed. That's kind of interesting. How do you imagine the, so we've focused a little bit on the pickpocketing. You also kind of talked about distributing the wealth Mm -hmm. back. Like, is that just a simple, as you complete things, things are automatically happening for you? Or is there a way to sort of unpickpocket potentially into the pockets of the needy? Well, I was thinking, you know, playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, it does have a system that's kind of similar to the Nemesis system, like you saw in Shadow of Mordor. uh, And then never since then, which is weird because it's like one of the most brilliant systems that's come out of this generation. But I digress. It, where, uh, you know, they have this whole system of like, like cult members that you can trace down using clues and stuff to try to, and there's a whole system of mercenaries that come after you, bounty hunters, like once you perform crimes and as you kill them, you can get kind of clues as to who the people that are higher up on the food chain are and, and, you know, try to find them or keep them from finding you depending on what your, your status is at that moment. Um, so I think, uh, a system where there are, you know, like you would think in the Nemesis system, like in, in Shadow of Mordor, where any person that you see on the street has an identity and could potentially become kind of a mover and shaker. And so it's up to you to kind of understand the world around you enough, whether it's through like RPG style quests or, 
just kind of observing people or just taking a chance on random people, giving them money and then kind of seeing what they do with it, um, seeing how it affects the social structure of the people in their neighborhood. And, you know, as you invest in particular people, they become, I guess, the equivalent of like warlords in uh, Shadow of Mordor. It would just be like prominent figures within the community. And they could either become, you know, positive influences on the community or they can become like really negative influences. I don't know. That's kind of interesting because now you could, what if you're also dealing with a political system and the goal is to sort of replace the, the rich, stodgy, corrupt people systematically with people who represent the interests of the actual common folk? Yeah. And trying to make sure that people remain honest all the way up the ladder. Um, I don't know exactly how that can be shaped, uh, but you know, this idea that a lot of people say, you know, if you had as much money as some of these people have, you would become corrupt as well. So maybe there is something to like having to make sure that they continue. They don't just become the same like rich assholes that you've been deposing the entire time. That's kind of interesting. You could do so. I mean, if you had a sort of watchdogs like sense of government or news or like media happening in the background of this whole thing, you could get reports and see like how people are voting and like check on voting records and go, you know, interrogate people who you've potentially installed and like get them to do favors for you. So you could really do like a, what if the point of Assassin's Creed was to affect political will more than it was to, you know, assassinate. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're almost playing like a, like the Godfather, the game where, you know, you're kind of overseeing a community and there's this, um, the kind of romantic figure of the, the mafia head is one of, you know, instead of bullying the community around, which is usually what gangs and mafias turn into, there's this idea that, you know, there's this person that is there to protect the community and is there to, you know, speak in the best interests of the people when the politics and the police don't necessarily. Thinking about how to expand on this. Or maybe the expansion's done. I I would also like to see something where you are able to fundraise for people who you think are potential, uh, you know, allies and how you deal with the betrayal of people. Like maybe then you do get the full Assassin's Creed, like I'm going to take this person out. And (laughs) so you can steal, you can give uh, and donate, but then you also have to... Uh, you know, deal with people who aren't going along with what you want and you you can yeah. potentially also nudge people in, in those directions. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have on that one. Let's close it down and come up with a name. So to go back to the Occupy Wall Street type of thing, maybe something like Occupy All Streets. I don't know if it necessarily... Occupy All Streets. <laughs> oh my goodness. I guess sure is my, my quick answer there. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Yeah. Why not? All right. Cool. Well, yeah, just, uh, I don't know. That's kind of a cute title. I don't mind. Let's go over to the community and see what y'all have for us this week. This one comes from Jimprovisor, who we've heard from before, who says, Metroidvania, stay with me, but really embracing the multiverse theory. The game starts out simple enough until your character faces a game-altering choice. Rather than making the choice you now have the ability to swap between dimensions where your character made the other choice. This will continue to grow as choices are made within these dimensions, and it would create new ones. 
Power-ups may only exist in one dimension, but need to be used in others. This way, rather than heaps of interconnected spaces, it could be one space that grows as choices are made. You could also have only a couple of NPCs, but as the choices expand, each version of them changes drastically. Alright, very interesting starting the clock. I do like the idea of taking the ever-growing maps as we, you know, have more technology behind these Metroidvanias and condensing them down to a space with multiple layers. For whatever reason in my head, mechanically, I started thinking about as you were reading this and describing it, what if, you know, the two bumper buttons on a controller or the R and L buttons could toggle between, you know, as many universes, as many multiverses as you could possibly think of, you know, maybe there's 30 at any given point or something. This actually reminds me a lot of uh, one of our pitches from very, very, very early in the run called Colorless the Chameleon, which is a 3D platformer that we pitched in which a chameleon who lived in a world of like silent film cartoons, like old Mickey Mouse cartoons, gained the ability to kind of cross over into other um, genres of television. And and the premise was that it was all just like one big open world, this whole platformery stage. But instead of going into different worlds, you would change the channel to other genres and that would like affect the physical properties of the things around you. And so I, I do like this. I think this grounds it really well in a really understandable way, in a way that um, it would be really easy to kind of keep track of how the generations differ from one another because you played a part in shaping what each of them look like thing that I am a bit worried about is that like, once we get like maybe more than four of these different dimensions, I don't know how to like communicate which one is which necessarily like, you know, in, um, like which one's canonical. (laughs) Well, in, uh, in another game to reference, uh, called Quantum Conundrum that is made by one of Portal's designers, and it's another kind of first-person puzzle type of game. Um, but the uh, the premise in that one is that you can change the materials that everything around you is made out of. So there was a fluffy dimension, there was a heavy dimension, there was, I don't remember exactly, there was a dimension where everything was like really light or really bouncy or something like that. Um, but it's really easy to kind of like visually communicate, okay, now... I'm in the heavy dimension. I can expect things to to go in this way. You know, I, I don't know how to communicate unless one choice made very early in the game flooded the entire world, and now that's the water dimension. But that doesn't really feel like it gets to the heart of what Jim Improviser is suggesting here. One of the things that I liked about the sp- most recent animated Spider-Man movie, Into the Spider-Verse, right, where Spider-Man mm-hmm. seems to be like the canonical reference point for saying canonical a lot this canonical reference point for multiverses these days Mm -hmm. and one thing that could be really cool is using i think in colorless right you were bringing color to a world or you were traveling between these dimensions to to sort of color colorize or going Mm -hmm. into colors or something what if you could play with wildly different aesthetics right the same way that we had the game the messenger come out recently that was very 8 and 16 bit oriented what if you could toggle between almost like game like types of game 
in a very small contained space and you're like, okay, no, to solve this puzzle, I'm going to need RPG mechanics and turn-based controls and to solve another puzzle, I'm going to need... Oh, that's interesting. You know, an action games move set, but really the map is relatively controlled in the same, but you've rendered it in almost an, you know, even more than near automata amount of ways. I'm really into that actually, where you have a Metroidvania map, like a Hollow Knight or a Super Metroid or something like that. And then as you progress, you can gain other genres of video games. And so you can turn it into a, you know, a Doom like first person shooter. And you can see, you know, parts of the stage that you couldn't see before because it was in 2D previously. Uh, You can turn it into like an isometric uh, ultimate play the game type of game. Uh, You can turn it into like an RTS or something. All these different types of games. A survival, like a Minecraft crafting game where you can take pieces of the environment and reconstruct them so you get access to new areas. Yeah, gosh, that this sounds very interesting. I'm really into it. It sounds like it could get uh, very, very complicated very quickly. <laughs> yeah, the scope is is huge. But I mean, you could do it in very practical ways, right? Like if you, let's say one of the, it starts off feeling very Super Metroid. Samus mm-hmm. gets missiles, right, at one point. Well, now in the RPG land, missiles is a spell that you can cast in the in the crafting land, maybe gunpowder or something becomes a material that you have access to and you can kind of connect things as long as you control the sort of set number of things that the player ends up playing with okay yeah so gosh let's see um yeah so maybe there's a level of so i i do like what you were saying about like minecraft reshaping the level that puts me in the mind of another great metroidvania called uh steamworld dig in SteamWorld Dig 2, where oh, yeah. instead of just going on platforming challenges, it was a platformer, essentially, but you were digging through the dirt and creating all these trails through the, through the dirt, and in a sense, kind of creating your own platforming challenges because you would need to resurface and go up back to the um, back to the surface of the, of the land. And so you have to kind of think ahead and leave yourself a way out, otherwise you would be kind of stuck down there. So yeah, that's that's interesting. And then maybe once late in the game, maybe you you gain the ability to kind of terraform and and reshape your environment. All of the other genres would have to be kind of built around things that could fit within a procedural space, like um, like SteamWorld Heist uh, is another great game, which is has a very different gameplay style. It's almost kind of XCOM like, but you get the feeling that it could. It could generate interesting challenges regardless of what the the stage around you looked like. Who are the SteamWorld people again? The image in form? Is yes. That... Okay. So, yeah, they're definitely the most equipped studio to actually <laughs> execute on the thing we're talking about, right? Because they've done the sort oh, of Metroidvania. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're quite good at it, right? They've done it a couple times, but they've mm-hmm. also done card combat RPG and they've done sort of turn-based strategy or kind of half real-time strategy so i think that they're they're playing with enough things that you know we're talking about wildly different rendering styles potentially you just kind of pare that down into all of a similar style but you know meaningfully different gameplay mechanics so that you can solve different things by thinking about, okay, what gameplay system maps to solving the puzzle as much as 
what sort of tools do I have access to that solve the, the puzzle. And it would be kind of interesting if, as you encounter an enemy, if you do it in the isometric view, then you kind of go into a chrono trigger random encounter versus if you hit them in the side-on view, then you need to just kind of like take them out with your sword like you would in uh, Symphony of the Night. Yeah, that's cool. How do we handle upgrades? So, How do we handle like getting new things and going to to new areas? One of the most interesting things that I've watched recently during GDQ was the, was the, did you see this, the Link to the Past Super Metroid randomizer? No. So what they did, and they kind of explained this, so I'm going to, as somebody who doesn't fully understand, I'm probably going to butcher the explanation, but basically Super Metroid and uh, A Link to the Past both didn't take up the entire cart worth of space. And from the way they described it, it sounded like the way that like items were stored in the memory of both games, they almost kind of like took up the opposite ends of the cart. And so, you know, without much retooling, uh, just using kind of um, the types of like randomizer software that already exists, that already kind of randomizes the location of uh, key items in um, in the Zelda and the Super Metroid games, respectively, like, you know, you have yeah. any treasure chest could spawn any item or just one rupee or whatever, you know, every treasure chest had just had its content shuffled throughout the Zelda game. Um, they found a way to make the items uh, distribute across both Super Metroid and A Link to the Past. So you'd have to be playing through both games kind of simultaneously. You'd be switching back and forth between Metroid and Zelda. And as you gain, you, you know, as you open a treasure chest, it could be any Zelda item or any Metroid item. And then, you know, you could open a treasure chest wow. in the thief's hideout and it could be like sewer missiles. And then that would give you the opportunity to progress a little farther in Super Metroid. And then you can get the hook shot over there or something like that, you know? So you just didn't know. And so it's a, it's a great run. You should definitely check it out. Uh, two players did it as a race, kind of. <laughs> and uh, it's super fascinating. Um, very entertaining to watch as well. Um, but yeah, there's... Um, I guess you could do something like that where not every upgrade could be used in every style, but it's not necessarily like you wouldn't get that styles upgrades in that pathway necessarily. You could also do something. So I love the idea of maybe each verse uh, having a different currency to it mm -hmm. and different currencies being worth different amounts of money in each one. So maybe there's like you do the link between worlds or the, um, yeah, I think it's the link between worlds like store essentially where there's items you can buy them. I even like one of these potential verses that you can go into universes you go into where you it's heavily focused on like having conversations with people. So you get mechanics like you can talk the shop owner down for like a permanent discount across mm -hmm. the other universes or something. Mm. But if you do a centralized vendor accepts multiple currencies and then you can kind of learn what at different times, maybe different versions of the vendor are looking for different currencies or they're finding different ones valuable. Yeah. Well, we are over time already. So We'll have to close that one down. I would say if there's any precedent for doing this, this would be worth revisiting again because there's a lot here and I feel like we were just able, barely able to scratch the surface, but I don't, yeah. I don't think that's usually how we roll, but I mean, we are, we are low on pitches right now, so we, we might have to get creative. We, we might. Up. I'll do week two on this guy. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. 
not going to make any promises right now, but um, super interesting idea. And of course, as always, we are throwing it back out to the community. If there's something that you would like to see uh, done with this idea, then uh, yeah, give us an email. We'd love to read a follow-up on this one or any other that we've done before. Uh, but anyways, if you would like to submit a, uh, a video game idea of your very own, you can do so by going to playwrightcast.com slash pitch. You can email us playwrightcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at playwrightcast. Special thank you to Protodome for the use of our theme song, Hello World, off the album Blue Noise. And hey, what I'm going to pitch this week, go check out, of course, as always, the other shows on the Kane and Rinse Network, but... Uh, I spent some time uh, over the past couple of days listening to some history of video game music mixes here <laughs> by, by Mr. Amon himself. That page is right on, you can get to it from the navigation on our site. Go listen to those. If you really love video game music, uh, you can download those MP3s. It's all there. It's, it's very cool. And it's, it's in a very ambitious project. I was joking with you today about, I don't know how you're going to do pre 1980, uh, video game music. Yeah, it's going to be oh rough. <laughs> Just a series of bleeps. You know, yeah. I, I believe it, that it was real, whatever it ends up in there. <laughs> um, so uh, that does it for that, I think. I think that's all the, the stuff. Of course, those mixes always uh, debut on Sound of Play. We've got another one debuting next week. Uh, as of listening to this, I, I believe that's right. Yes, next Wednesday will be another one. And uh, just yesterday, we put out an excellent interview with Mr. Grant Kirkhope oh! on uh, Sound of Play. We teased it. Y'all didn't believe me. Yeah, great, great uh, composer. Uh, a real pleasure to talk to. It's me and Darren um, talking to him. Of course, Darren being the biggest rare fanboy that you've ever met. And so, you know, he's, uh, he's beside himself in that one. Um, it's, it's a really fun show. If you haven't already, then, uh, do check out the sound of play feed. That one's a, a real treat. And of course, more history of video, video game music next week, uh, along with, uh, the rest of the great shows on, uh, Ken and Rince and Sasha's factory. So yeah, good stuff all around. I would say. It's a good time to love games. That's right. Well, to take us out of the show, Q, why don't you come up with a mini pitch to take us out? I want a Star Wars junkyard simulator Ooh. where you are making uh, new tech and crafts out of existing beat up old crafts and things from all across the far, far away galaxy and uh, maybe trying to turn a profit in the process. All right. Pit droids too. I like it. <laughs> See you next week. Bye.